I think before I, I asked them to read my book, The Lost Frontier Handbook, I would probably, if you came for dinner, I would make it be known. First of all, anybody coming to my house is going to see chickens everywhere. Oh, tell me about oh, your I chickens. Have cared oh, well, about that. look at. I, so while I'm saying somebody would say would see those and they would see that I have a beautiful basket of eggs sitting on my counter. Wait, why aren't those in the refrigerator? Oh, well, let me explain why. Oh, by the way, this salad that we're having, everything that we're having, I grew in my garden. Wow, it's really fresh. This is amazing. Yes. And or it's I'm going to make some chili. Yes, this chili is made from elk meat or I'll make you my elk enchiladas, you know, something like this. And people are going to wonder, go, wow, this is amazing. Where did you get it? I harvested this meat. I processed it myself. I did long term storage by myself. I am very self-sufficient. I have friends that spin their own yarn. Welcome to the brand new podcast canning plus seven this is the podcast where we discuss canning other ways of food storage prepping gardening farming ranching homesteading and occasionally politics why do we discuss politics on this podcast because unfortunately when you talk about matters such as these it is hard not to get political anymore with the government interfering with a lot of these issues therefore occasionally we will discuss politics out here Suzanne C Sherman was my guest on the debut episode of this podcast Suzanne C Sherman has two podcasts one is the Wasatch Report but the other one that she's most likely well known for is the Red Hot Chili Prepper. That's the Red Hot Chili, C-H-I-L-L-Y, the Red Hot Chili Prepper. She also wrote a book that we briefly mentioned called The Lost Frontier. We began the podcast by briefly discussing my radio career and mentioning that I am now here at the Canning Plus 7 podcast. We also talked about how Suzanne Sherman became interested in being a prepper. We also asked the question, are preppers selfish? We both came to the conclusion, no. But we also talked about smart ways of preparation which we discuss at length on the podcast. We also discuss that prepping isn't just food storage. Prepping can be something as simple as how to communicate when the cell phone towers go down. Or what if you have a satellite phone, but a terrace knocked out the satellites from outer space? Suzanne also mentioned that where she lives in Utah, it's very remote and it's not uncommon to have power outages. Therefore, she has a generator that kicks on when the power turns off. We also discuss how to get Generation Z and other folks interested in prepping. I'm excited about this new podcast adventure, and I think you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned for this podcast and many more to come. Thank you very much. It is the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. This is the first episode of Canning Plus 7. A little bit about me, because I think I owe you all an explanation. Some of you may have never heard my voice before. Others have. So let me just give you a quick rundown of who I am, where I've come from, and why I'm here. I am the Blind Montana Man, Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man, and I have had a heavy interest in radio since November of 1987. It all started when I was, uh, I had a radio when I was six years old, and I used to think the radio stations were broadcasting live, which they were, but I used to think that when I would hear music on the radio, it was actually at a concert somewhere in Boise, Idaho. Since I lived in Ontario and I was fully aware of broadcasts, most of them, not all, most were coming from Boise, Idaho. And I thought, wait a minute, this can't be true because if they're live, how come there's not people there cheering? So I asked my dad, how is, the, how is all this coming over the radio? And he explained to me the radio transmitters and he explained about uh, record players and how you can play records on the radio and such. And I became interested. And before that, I wanted to be a well digger. And ever since then, I've wanted to be a broadcaster. So I've had experience. I'm just going to run this down real quick. Uh, since then, I've had experience uh, starting as a teenager running the soundboard for the Idaho Radio Reading Service in Boise, Idaho, which was a special radio station at the Idaho Commission for the Blind. I just ran the board while people would read the papers for blind people. 
And then I branched out and got into college eventually. I took a while, but I got into college, worked at the college radio station, KSUU, down in Cedar City for a while. And I worked for KTUC, and now I'm here. So that's just a very short rundown. I, I mean, I could get into this whole thing, but I think that's a good enough rundown, don't you think? Yes, I'm impressed. Okay. By the way, that's uh, Suzanne Sherman. Now, she has a podcast, two podcasts. One of them is the Red Hot Chili Prepper, which I think is a very good name, especially when you consider the fact that there is a group called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So the Red Hot Chili Prepper and the Wasatch Report. Now, the difference between the two podcasts, one is more political and the other is more prepping. Am I correct? That's the impression I'm under in listening to those podcasts. Yes, you're correct. I keep the Red Hot Chili, and that's spelled C-H-I-L-L-Y, C-H-I-L-L-Y, the Red Hot Chili Prepper. I keep that exclusively about preparedness. Okay. Now, this podcast deals with uh, prepping. Well, I'll just get, uh, this podcast deals with foods, uh, canning, other means of food storage, prepping, homesteading, gardening, farming, ranching, and the occasional politics along with prepping. So um, I got into prepping. Now, I'm not a prepper myself, but I'd sure love to be. But I got into the interest of prepping because in 2010, I started realizing what was going on. But what really piqued my interest, honestly, was the incident going on in Bunkerville, Nevada, down in uh, 2014. And I thought, wow, these uh, farmers and ranchers have it together. I don't have it together. And I'm talking about the Bundy Ranch, which I know you're familiar with, Suzanne. I happen to know Cliven. I met him personally. And that's when I really took a heavy interest and thought, you know what, these preppers are onto something here. So how did you get started into prepping? I guess we'll start there. Well, I grew up in California, and as a young girl, I heard these these stories about California one day sliding off the continent and ending into uh, ending up into the Pacific Ocean. And as a kid, that scared me. And then once I was older and got some context, I learned about plate tectonics and realized, okay, this isn't going to be the end of the world tomorrow. But as a eight year old kid without the context, that's really scary. Well, once I became a mother in my thirties. I realized that earthquakes are still something to be concerned with, and my children relied on me to be prepared in the event a large one did hit, and we would lose our structural uh, or home or have some serious damage, long-term power outage. So I started from there, and that's what I advise people to do. You know, you don't have to think that you're planning for the end of the world as we know it. Or, you know, the zombie apocalypse, start with what concerns your family and what's what's practical for you. So for us, it was preparing for earthquakes. So we started by having a, a set, a pair of uh, sturdy shoes by everybody's bed in case there was broken glass and metal shards, what have you. That and if we needed to escape and find a, a place to <clears throat> get out of harm's way. And then we had some food put up and go bags and some water supplies. And I had also taken up an interest in gardening because I was in an area that was, well, it was an agricultural area. So why not take advantage of the soil there? So I started growing foods, uh, starting with tomatoes. And I had so many, I had to learn how to preserve them. So first I just froze everything because that's, I had a freezer and anybody can pour something in a container and freeze it. But a freezer can only hold so much space. So I had to learn about other means of preservations. And I started with... um, pressure canning, hot water bath canning. And now I also do dehydrating. And in the background right now in another room, I have a freeze dryer going. So food preparation is kind of my forte. I'm a firm believer that, you know, food, water and shelter are your three basic requirements for survival. So I do have a home. I've done what I can to prepare this living in the harsh uh, climate that I do and water i have that taken care of and food is is a never-ending project you know this is something that you can store up to 25 years if you're freeze drying like i'm doing now and it gives you the freedom to preserve and have on hand the kind of food that your family is going to first of all enjoy 
Second of all, you can pronounce every ingredient in the food that you put up and store on your own. And if you have dietary restrictions or requirements, you can also make sure that that will be available for your family and yourself in a long-term situation. So when did you move to Utah and you live near Park City? Uh, I don't need, I don't know the exact town. I don't need to know. Don't mention that here on the podcast unless you want to, but I know you live in Summit County. When did you move to Utah and why? We moved here in 2013 in California. I, I grew up there and I was born there. I'd just seen how it had changed uh, since I had grown up and, and from being a child to raising my own children there. And it was no longer the place that I wanted to have my boys grow up. So while it's beautiful, there was just too many people. I also used to practice criminal defense. So I recognized the signs of encroaching gang activity in our community. I also recognized, you know, the extremely unreliable power grid situation they had there. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the 90s, there was actually an, uh, an attack where they shot the transformers at a power substation in South San Jose. Well, 15, within 15 minutes of that attack, they cut the fiber optic table, uh, cable, I beg your pardon, in Gilroy, disabling the 911 capabilities. So this was some sort of a targeted attack, to, I think, to see how vulnerable uh, the power was there. So you have the rolling blackouts, you have the, the brownouts when in, in California. When in the 90s was this, by the way? I have to look that up. I'm not sure. It might have been 96. I just I just remember. Because I'm aware going there in... was a huge power outage July 2nd, 1996. In fact, I remember that power outage very well. Then there was one on the 3rd of July, briefly, and then there was one on the 10th. That's why I'm wondering if it was a 96. There were a whole bunch of power outages at three that I just mentioned. And then there was one, oh gosh, probably happened in October, November of 96, or at least four that I know of in 96. There were so many, I couldn't even keep track of them, especially in the summer months. So when the power grid would just become overloaded. But this one attack, I'd have to look up and see when it was. And uh, I actually do mention that in my book, The Lost Frontier Handbook. It was one of the reasons that I realized that ah, we really do have to be prepared in case the power goes out for a long time. And in California in particular, you have to uh, also consider the ongoing issue with wildfires. And as we know, there are also uh, floods and, and landsli uh, landslides due to when the, when the rains finally hit. So there were a lot of reasons to prepare. Also economics, it's very expensive. The taxes are very high and the uh, energy supply, the, our electric bills were astronomical. And I just decided it was, it was time to go. And I took advantage of the real estate market there and was able to sell that home and that get something for a fraction of the price and live very comfortably here. And I have absolutely no regrets. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, how do you like it in Utah? I know the politics there are a little bit more liberal than we would like, especially where you're at <laughs> in Summit County. But all in all, how do you like Utah? I love Utah, you know, and um, yeah, I'm a little disappointed in where it's going politically. It's getting to be more and more like California with the big government and, uh, you know, some of the programs that they're talking about, particularly in Summit County, where we have to live under the auspices of the Summit County Sandinistas. But by and large, uh, I, I would take this over California in, uh, with, without a question. You know, we have the uh, LDS community out here and yeah. you could not ask for better friends and neighbors. They literally help you. In California, they'll sit around and, you know, watch you struggle and it, you don't really have the sense of community. But out here, I'm in a very remote area. My neighbors are a half a mile away. Uh, sometimes we'll get snow drifts and, and a big storm where even my tractor and plow can't handle it. But my neighbors will reach out to me without even asking with their, you know, with their backhoes and, and offering to help me. So it's a, it's a great community and I couldn't ask for a better place to be. Let me ask you this. Why did you choose Summit County over, let's say South Central Utah, where they're more conservative? And I know that for a fact, I've been there. You probably know that. What made you choose Summit County? You know, it, it's, <clears throat> I, I found the property. I had gone on, I'd taken my boys on this um, vacation 
outfit in, in Wyoming. And some of us kept in touch. And one of the outfitters on this vacation, we were talking on social media. And I said, I've been looking for a place. We're looking at Southern Utah. We drove through there, Arizona, Nevada. And I have lived in an area where we just didn't have significant weather changes. So I was asking about, you know, Northern Utah. And he said, you know what? Check out Colville. I, you know, he said, don't mention the town. I don't care if I, you know, Colville's where I live. Okay. And he said, uh, you'll love it. Everybody has horses and guns. You'll fit right in. And as we were talking, I did a search on real estate for Colville. And this property popped right up. And it was everything I was looking for, for a prepper's paradise. And it was close enough to civilization where, you know, my boys wouldn't be bored just living up in the middle of nowhere. We could do homeschool co-ops, you know, close by in the community in Park City. And it was just everything I wanted. So we were able to make it work. Are you going to write a song, uh, Prepper's Paradise, and sing it to the tune of uh, Gangster's Paradise? <laughs> I don't sing. <laughs> oh. Well, Weirdo did that with the uh, Amish Paradise. I figured maybe you ought to write a song called uh, Prepper's Paradise and sing it to the tune of Gangster's Paradise. Yeah, not happening. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, let's. I, I want to talk uh, since this, this is the first podcast that I have done. Um, this is on anchor.fm. Well, I don't need to say that. Everybody knows that. Okay. That's my terrestrial radio coming out of me. Um, so let's talk about prepping here because you've got some good stuff on your website. Tell us about the time when I guess it was probably one of your first weeks in Utah or your obviously your first hunting excursion in Utah when you killed a deer and you were you had to you had to prepare it on your own. Now I know nothing about deer. I know nothing about hunting. But you felt like uh, your husband left with the deer skinned and uh, tenderly. I can't remember the exact words wording that you used, but uh, nonetheless, you felt like your husband had to go plow the fields, and you were there on your own after he fielded it, whatever that means, and then. Uh, tell us about that experience, because I'm sure that that was an eye-opener. I don't know if I want to say a wake-up call, because you were already awake, but certainly an eye-opener. Well, a lot of times when I'm trying something new, I will envision that I am already adept and skilled at doing what I'm trying to do. Uh, one example is when I was taking the bar exam uh, on one of the days we have to do these performance exams, for instance, where we have to read about 50 pages and then write about 20 pages in response to that. And rather than being in the mindset that I was a nervous candidate sitting for the bar exam, I was an attorney sitting in my beautiful corner office in a high rise in downtown LA. And I passed. So with this, with this story with the deer, it was actually a neighbor who said that his brother had shot this buck and he was, he was a trophy hunter. He just wanted the antlers. Did I want the body? Did I want the rest of it? Sure. I'll take it. So I went down to his barn and he showed me how to skin it out and I took the carcass home with me. And that at that point, I thought, I don't know what to do with this. I've been reading books. I had been looking at diagrams and, and uh, tutorials online, but when it came to having it right there, I thought, okay, I'm going to go into that, that strategy that's worked for me so many times before. And I'm, uh, I'm a frontier woman and my husband killed this deer. He dressed it out. Field dressing is what I was referring to. And here it is. Now it's up to me to get the meat off the bones and package and process it. And he's out plowing. He doesn't have time to do this as well. So that was my mindset. And I got it done. You know, not everybody that moved out, none of, not all the pioneers had their moms with them to show them how to do this. Or maybe their moms were back east and didn't, you know, lived in the city. So I just yeah. kind of got to the point. I'm here. I have to get it done. And I probably wasted more meat than I should have on that first one, but I've gotten way better at it. And now I use everything. I even make stock with it. And, and uh, it, was, it was a learning experience. And sometimes it's really helpful to learn things on your own. Is venison pretty good? I heard you either like it or you don't. I've never had venison in my entire life. You know, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on what the deer has been eating. It depends on how 
it was killed? You know, was it in a fight or flight response? Was it on, was it running? Was it calm? I like to, you know, people like to criticize uh, rifle hunters because it's not fair. But the thing is, I'm out there to get meat. So if there's a deer having a nice peaceful day and all of a sudden it's lights out, I would prefer that for the deer. Um, I would prefer that for myself, quite honestly, to just not know it's coming and not be afraid. And so for the deer, uh, when I shoot them, they are relaxed and they are calm. I've, I have shot one bedded down. People might not like that or think that that's not sporting, but the deer was in a relaxed state and that's how it was. With the deer is under extreme duress, people say that can affect the meat. And then the rest de is determined by how you process it. Do you, do you feel dress it? Do you cool the meat down right away? Do you skin it out? Is it cooled until, you know, and is it aged right? Do you keep it cool until you process it? So there's a lot to it. Some, some good meat can be ruined by poor handling after the, after the fact. And some meat, no matter what you do, I had a friend that lived up in Wisconsin where the deer are eating a bunch of pine needles and they said that the meat tasted like pine salt. Oh, wow. Why? Because the deer ate a bunch of pine needles? Yeah, it was just the food it was eating. So where okay. I live and primarily hunt, I live in the middle of a bunch of hay fields. So these deer are, you know, eating what the cows eat and they're nice and fat and they taste pretty good. I prefer elk. And then above that, I prefer oh, I uh, moose. Yeah, and then a uh, moose is really now to good me. As well. Moose tastes a lot like hamburger or beef. I do. I cannot notice. I do not notice the difference. Am I? Yeah, the only moose. One? I, no, I would say moose does taste the most like uh, the most like beef. That might be why I like it the best. I think venison's my least favorite. That's typically what I give away. But the people that I give it to are really happy to have it. So now, part of my you know, ignorance. It, what is field dressing? Field dressing is just where you take the guts out. You need okay. to pull the meat off. Yeah, you need to get the meat, the temperature down immediately. So when you're out in the field, you cut it open, you disembowel it, you take out the rectum, anything that's going to um, contaminate the meat later. So essentially, you take out all the insides. Okay. That shows you how, that's why I do this podcast, so I can educate myself on being a prepper. <laughs> um, okay, so that's great. And... I guess venison has a sweet flavor to it. I love elk. Now, let's talk about something that I thought was really interesting. Our preppers, and this is on your latest blog entry, are preppers uh, selfish? No, I don't think so. If you, I guess it depends on your motive of what a prepper is. Um, I think if, and you alluded to this on your blog, if you buy things, let's say there's a sale of toilet paper and we'll use toilet paper since there was a shortage of toilet paper. It was really goofy, but anyway, yeah, you go to the store, you buy a whole bunch of toilet, you buy maybe two or three rolls of toilet paper and that's it. Or you go to Costco, you might buy two big bags of toilet paper. And then you, when you need it, you know, you might put the one bag in your basement. You might put the series of toilet paper rolls in your basement and use one in your bathroom. And when you go back to Costco, you keep buying two bags and stock up. So, no, I don't think preppers are selfish. I think that they are preparing for, I don't want to say the apocalypse, but they're preparing for natural disasters. They're preparing for shortages like we had. Right now, I, I, I know that there's meat is awfully expensive so what what is your take on that uh, i thought that your blog entry put it into a good perspective oh thank you yeah that came about because one time when we were doing a, a facebook live presentation we used to actually record our 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 podcasts on facebook live and have audience participation and interaction and one person had commented because i said hey when this whole thing started because when the whole covid you know, warnings started coming out, people just panicked and started stocking up on grocery carts full of toilet paper that they later tried to return because they realized it was kind of a dumb thing to do. So I said, I had all I needed from the get go. And somebody chimed in saying, well, you're the reason I wasn't able to get any. And I said, no, actually, I had been stocking up and had a supply long before this. So I wouldn't wait until I was down to my last roll or two and get some more. 
I would get something every time I shop, I get something prepper related. Even if I don't think I really need it, if there's a good price, I will take it. So just a quick aside, I recently scored cans of sweet corn for 50 cents each at Walmart. Well, okay, I freeze dried that. So I'm done with corn for a while. Well, I just went to another store out in Stansbury by Tooele, Utah. Oh my gosh, they have corn, sweet corn for 38 cents a can. So I bought another case of those, which I will get to freeze drying as well. So, you know, the, the theory that if you don't, if you buy up everything in stock because you are panic buying, that is selfish. And if you do this, systematically over time, you have what you need and it's no burden on the supply source whatsoever because everybody can still have some. You know, when it was difficult to get canning supplies for, you know, for years, every time I go out, if I'd see a, a case of canning jars, I'll grab a case or some lids. Well, you couldn't get the lids. So I found some at the local uh, grocery store in town and I took about five or six uh, packages of them. There were about 12 of them there and they'd been there for a while. So there wasn't a big demand. So I took enough that I was going to get me through. But again, if you take them all, that is selfish. So what motivates a prepper? Uh, the desire to plan ahead, the desire to provide for your family in the case of, I don't know, an illness. We know illnesses can be devastating to a family financially or inflation, we're seeing that right now. Again, sometimes you have to combine preparedness and politics. Our government is printing That's why money I decided like there's... to put politics on my podcast because unfortunately, you cannot talk about these things without politics uh, sometimes. Now, we're not going to get political in every podcast, just so you know, but I put it on there to be flexible because unfortunately, yeah. you, it, you just can't. There's no way that there is no, you can't bring up politics in some of these discussions, unfortunately. Carry on, though. And, and inflation is something that is irrefutable. Nobody can, nobody can deny that food prices are going up at an insane rate. So why not? And I've been saying this for some time. We are going to have a very high rate of inflation. For years, I've been telling people, start stocking up on foods and learn how to preserve it for the long haul. And nobody can deny that. This isn't tinfoil hat stuff. Um, now we're seeing supply chain issues with regards to building materials. First things I did when I got this home was put up brand new exterior doors, weatherproof them and put in all new windows, double paned glass, everything weatherproofed and also a generator. So if the power goes out here and it does, like I said, I'm in a remote area with harsh, harsh weather conditions and we lose the power and that generator kicks right up. So, you know, my my goal is to have my life change as little as possible for these inconveniences. And in the long term, it's to thrive as much as possible and not just survive. Well, you bring up something interesting. A lot of people and I've gotten into this mindset before. A lot of people think of prepping as food storage, but no, it's more than that. It's communication. What do you do when the communications go down? Uh, you get a ham radio or you get a satellite phone. Of course, uh, I'm not sure that I'd trust a satellite phone if some terrorist knocked out a bunch of satellites in space. Could happen. Yeah, I'm actually but, a ham radio operator myself, uh, KJ7UCG. <laughs> oh, I'm a ham operator too. We'll have to talk on oh. the podcast about that. Sure. Um, yeah, I need some help because I need to learn how to use it better. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have a discussion anyway. Uh, yeah. So what do you do when the communications go down? What do you do if you break your arm and right now the hospital beds are full to capacity because of COVID? I'm not going to debate whether the numbers or whatever, but let's just, the reality right. is because of COVID, the hospital beds are, well, the hospitals are overflowing. Um, what do you do if you break your arm and you can't get in to see a doctor for a couple of days? Do you want to have a doctor live near you? These kind of things. Uh, correct? Well, that's interesting because one of the things I talk about, um, I had some friends during Hurricane Katrina, how they all had to come together during a community. And one practice I try to get people to understand is come up with a plan in your community together. and 
if there is a physician in your neighborhood, say, hey, if we can count on you to help us with your services, um, would you be able to, would, would you accept us providing you with your food needs, possibly security needs, clothing, carpentry, electrical work, there, plumbing. There are so many things you can offer people with skills like that. There's also many books out there that tell you, uh, one is by uh, Joe Alton, MD, and what he says, he's known as Dr. Bones. And I think that's um, Doom and Bloom is their website. But he says there are probably 99% of ailments you can treat outside of a hospital. He even teaches you how to deliver a baby. Now, at this point, I'd be very reticent to go to a hospital for an illness. But there are some instances if I want a midwife, where you... I'll have a polygamist come over. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, so, I, I mean, I, but... I say that because apparently there's a lot of midwives that are polygamists out there. Well, you know, I, I think home births are amazing and uh, hats off to the women that could get that done. I think it's a beautiful thing. So, um, but there are some, obviously there are going to be some circumstances where you are going to need to go to a physician. And if you are not able to get one, there might be some things that you cannot, that you cannot save. So um, I, you know, I, I try and put my money in the good health bank by making sure that as I grow older, I will not need to have lots of medical attention. I try to watch my weight, you know, diabetes with everybody focusing on a virus right now, they're ignoring the number one comorbidity, which is obesity. So what, what have we seen here in the last year, there's been absolutely no dietary assistance or guidance to get people to lose weight. They shut the gyms down, wouldn't let you go to the park, wouldn't let you exercise on the beach, you know, or, or stop any of that. But by golly, you can sit home on your butt and have junk food delivered right to your door. Yes, I used, uh, I'll admit, I used DoorDash and Uber Eats quite a bit last year, thanks to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And, and not to say that there aren't healthy options available for those, but most of the ads that I saw were for the traditional fast food restaurants and oh. uh, just, just junk food and garbage out there. And now people are depressed. They're not going out. They're not allowed to exercise. And it's hard to exercise inside your home. I did it a little bit in March when my boxing gym was shut down, but it's not as fun. There's nothing like it. But if that's what it comes to eventually, you know, that's what you got to do. But people need to think about long-term health benefits of being healthy. You know, you're not going to want to have to deal with trying to get insulin when the medical care is going to get more and more difficult to get. Yeah, for the record, uh, when I use DoorDash, most of the time I was ordering Chinese food or Cajun food. Um, I'm, what else did I order? I ordered, uh, I did order pizza once, but most of the time it was Chinese food, Cajun food, Mexican food. So I probably ate more healthy than a lot of people using those services, for the record. <laughs> anyway, so another thing I want to bring up, let me just tell you a personal story of mine to put things into perspective, because you did a your latest podcast, how to get people into prepping that aren't into prepping. And you were particularly talking about spouses or people you might live with who completely disagree with what you're doing. So let's get into this. Uh, let me just tell you a personal story. In 1989, I was sitting at a church service and somebody said, get your food storage because in 20 years we might have a famine. Well, for some reason that stuck to me, it kind of scared me. I was nine years old and just the idea of a famine scared me for some reason. Still, still would to this day. Sure. But, it's a, it's a real, it's, it's, there's, that's not, we're not too far away from that. I mean, look at the supply no. chain shortages, the meat shortages, um, eggs that we saw. Anyway, I'll let you continue. So. I talked to my mom about it and I said, mom, are we going to have a famine in 20 years? I think I used the word food shortage because I didn't know what a famine was at that point. And she said, well, no, he was just saying, get ready because it's a possibility, which put my mind at ease a little. But I just remember hearing the whole topic, food storage, food storage, food storage, food storage. I happen to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And back in the 80s and 90s, well, not so much in the late 90s, but definitely in the early 90s and in the 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, going clear back, they would say, get a year, get a two-year supply of food. 
Well, I thought that that was kind of ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest with you. Because never in my life have I seen a famine, nor have I witnessed one to this day. Never have I gone without food, you know, just because there isn't food there. I may have skipped a meal by choice, yes, because I was full or I didn't feel like preparing anything or something. And I thought, I'll just skip a meal. It's no different than fast Sunday or whatever. So, but, you know, I've never skipped a meal because there was a food shortage. Even during times that I was nearly broke, I had food on hand. Of course, I did that by design. Um, so I just thought that this whole concept of food storage was ridiculous. But then my mom told me, um, I must have been, let's see, I was 21 years old and my mom and I were talking about food storage. And she said, did you know that when your dad was out of work twice, we used our food storage? And I said, no, I did not know that. And she said, yes, we did. And I do remember we had a deep freeze and every Sunday she, I was always wondering how did she come up with all this meat when my dad was out of work? Well, now I know it's because of food storage. We had a deep freeze and all kinds of meat was stored in there that I did not know about. Well, I'm sure I knew that it was there, but I didn't think anything of it. And so that kind of got me thinking. And then, um, as I said, well, you know, I saw what was going on in the country, but I think because my mom told me that, that we used our food storage when my dad was out of work twice, that kind of got me thinking, okay, maybe there is some wisdom to this food storage idea. But I still kept hearing, get your food storage. We're going to, we may have a shortage. And I thought, there's no way. I've been hearing this rhetoric ever since I was little. It hasn't happened, but I'll store food for economic reasons. And now look where we are. So that kind of got my interest. My mom put things into perspective. I think that was your whole point. Uh, put it into, make it something that they can relate to. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, the best approach, it appeals to their common sense. And that takes us back to where we started, where earthquakes are common. Okay, you can tell anybody that lives in California, hey, as you know, it's probably a good idea to put some sturdy work boots by the bed, have some water, have some food in case you have to hunker down in the house, or if the structural integrity of your house is compromised, make sure that you have fuel in your car, know the evacuation route, stuff like that. They can't say you're crazy because it's proven that earthquakes, they have them, they have them in California every single day, you know, get them to have extra batteries for flashlights if the power goes out. Well, what else does California have? They have tons of blackouts, uh, a wrench to turn off the gas. So these, are, these aren't means of preparing that's going to break anybody's budget and it's going to also appeal to their environment. And then also what we've seen in this past year is how vulnerable people are and how precarious their job situation may be. They may think that they might have been going on for decades thinking that their job was secure and nothing was going to happen until businesses started to get shut down. My godparents owned a restaurant in San Francisco called the Cliff House. They have had this thing for, I think, 60 years now. Well, with COVID coming on and then the issues with the National Park Service not taking any kind of reduction in their agreement, they had to shut down. None of my family members ever would have imagined being unemployed and trying to find work after this. So this is the great equalizer. This will happen, can happen to anybody. So if, if 2020 and 2021 haven't taught anybody anything, it's, you know, it's be sure to know that you should have a plan in effect if you lose your source of employment and income. The thing that worries me as I was on a conversation last night, I was in a conversation last night with someone and saying, how do we get millennials to want to be preppers? And obviously it comes back to what we talked about, but then he brought up something interesting. He said, Kevin, I'm not worried about the millennials. I'm worried about generation Z because they know nothing about prepping, nor are they interested. They have all this technology they're just not yeah. interested. In fact, he even told me that when he puts financial classes on, people from Generation Z don't sign up. Now, that could be a maturity thing, because if we went back 
to the 1980s. I was just a kid in the 80s, but I'm sure if we went back to the 80s and did financial classes, you probably wouldn't see a bunch of 19, 20, 21-year-olds there. You'd probably see people in their early 30s. So I don't know if it's that much different than today, but it just seems like if you try to talk about these things to even my age group, although he was telling me the millennials had it together more so than the previous generation, which I thought was interesting. Maybe you can expand on that. But he also said, uh, I'm worried about Generation Z. They don't care at all. What's your perspective? I think we have the public education system to thank for that. They've, they've been remarkably successful in teaching these kids, or I should say indoctrinating these kids to believing that the government will take care of them. And this is exactly what we've seen with the federal unemployment uh, bonus that we've seen after government has been shutting down businesses after business. And, and they're saying, well, you know, why would I bother going back to work? And now they've also been, you know, indoctrinated into the fact that it's not really work. It's not really worthy, uh, worth your time to go to work unless you're getting a certain minimum wage, like $15 an hour. You know, uh, indoctrination and easy living have made kids soft. I mean, I remember my friends had paper routes. They'd be riding their bicycles rain or shine and didn't matter what the weather was. And that that paper, I saw them on their bikes throwing those in the people's driveways or mowing other people's lawns. And you're not seeing a lot of that right now for a multitude of reasons. Uh, municipalities requiring kids who might want to mow lawns for summer for extra money now have to get a permit. Well, why do you think that is? Because landscape contractors who can reach into the pockets of the city councils can say, no, I don't want to have to compete with these kids. So these guys who are essentially pimping out Mexicans, pushing lawnmowers are taking are making it so these kids can't go out and earn a living. And I don't blame the people that are working for the landscapers. I blame the landscape, the landscapers for pushing these kids out of work because they don't want to compete with a kid that might be happy making five bucks mowing his neighbor's lawn. Yeah. Well, um, so let's suppose I'm a Generation Z person. I'm 19 years old. What would you tell me? How would you personalize the message to me as a Generation Z, just pretending here, that it's important to be a prepper or get food storage or something to that effect? I know... You're probably going to say, well, it goes back to this conversation that we had earlier. Yes, but how would you personalize it to me as a Generation Z person? Well, it starts with the family. So this has to be a value that you show them as they are growing up. And that's something I did with my kids. When I was gardening, my younger one, I had big plastic trucks. He was playing out there in the mud when I was gardening. Just today, my older son and I, he's 23 now. We were picking cherry tomatoes and getting uh, beefsteak tomatoes out of the raised beds. And he just was saying, I forgot how much fun this is. I just love doing this with you. It takes getting them involved and needs to be something that they realize this is a benefit to me. Oh, my gosh, this stuff my mom planted. Here we are on the table. It's on the table. It's a delicious salad, everything from the garden or foraged from the property, you know, mixed with that. This meat on the table, my mom went out in, you know, 14 degrees below and, and got this elk. And now we are having these amazing burgers or backstraps by the fire inside or burgers outside in the summer. Make it a positive experience where they will see and understand the benefits of it. Would it be easy to try and me talk to somebody that, who's Gen Z, that, that generation, and instill those values in them that weren't raised up? No, I don't think I could do it. One of my son's friends said, oh, from what I've heard about you, you're very old fashioned. Well, I can food. I do all these things that were old fashioned. The point being, once upon a time, self-reliance and preparedness was a way of life. And now with decades of easy living, government involvement in the food supply and the government and the school saying, we're going to take care of you for pretty much anything. They don't see the need for this. And I, I fear for them. I really do. Well, maybe this is just me, but uh, I grew up with a garden and my mom made sure that I would weed the garden. I didn't do much. I didn't do anything at all with planting. 
I could have, I just didn't for whatever reason. But I certainly was in charge of weeding and picking the raspberries from the raspberry bush. But let's suppose I was a, I'm a generation Z, had no experience with gardening, growing food or whatever. Now I'm on my own in college. I meet someone like you and we click uh, for whatever reason, even if let's suppose I'm a typical generation Z, I'm a Democrat or I'm a liberal, I'm a leftist, whatever term you want to use. But maybe we had something in common. Maybe I'm interested in radio. Maybe I'm thinking of getting a ham radio license. And so you say, and we get to know each other. This isn't just a one-day thing. We get to know each other. Let's say we meet every week at the student union building because you're there for something. Or maybe you work at one of the restaurants there at the student union building serving food. I ask you a ham radio question and we just talk every time I order food. And then you say, uh, Kevin, we've been talking for quite a bit. Uh, why don't you come over for Sunday dinner? We're, we're going to have dinner on Saturday. Why don't you come over? And I say, sure. I've known you well enough. I feel comfortable with the idea. And I'm satisfied with your food. And we talk more about radio I give you little information on the telecom industry because I'm, let's say, going into broadcasting. I give you a little insight on how to be a good broadcaster. Maybe a few weeks down the road, you say, Kevin, have you thought about reading this book? It's called The Wild Frontier, whatever the book it is that you wrote. And I said, no, never heard of it. And he said, okay, here, read it sometime. Let's, uh, let's say I'm bored one day and I happen to read it. And then I see you uh, sometime in the next week or you invite me over to your place. And I said, oh, I read the book. Here's what I agree with. Here's what I disagree with. And we have a conversation. Uh, that's probably how you would have to approach a lot of these Generation Z people. What do you think? I think before I, I asked them to read my book, The Lost Frontier Handbook, I would probably, if you came for dinner, I would make it be known. First of all, anybody coming to my house is going to see chickens everywhere. Oh, tell me about oh, your I chickens. Have cared oh, well, about that. look at. I, and so, while well, I'm saying somebody would say would see those, and they would see that I have a beautiful basket of eggs sitting on my counter. Wait, why aren't those in the refrigerator? Oh, well, let me explain why. Oh, by the way, this salad that we're having, everything that we're having, I grew in my garden. Wow, it's really fresh. This is amazing. Yes, and or it's I'm going to make some chili. Yes, this chili is made from elk meat or I'll make you my elk enchiladas, you know, something like this. And people are going to wonder, go, wow, this is amazing. Where did you get it? I harvested this meat. I processed it myself. I did long term storage by myself. I am very self-sufficient. And as you can see me living in this very remote area, there's a reason I'm self-sufficient. And uh, you don't have to be in a remote area to be that way. You can live in a high rise building and still be a prepper, or even have a bit of a homesteading mentality and be self-reliant. So I would start by leading by example, not giving them a reading assignment. I would give them food and say, this is what I have. Or, you know, if, if you if I have friends that are uh, that that spin their own yarn and, and do beautiful crochets. Maybe I would make somebody a hat and say, yes, I made this. Here's a hat for you. I spun my own yarn. You know, uh, a lot of people have things like that or they make jewelry. Uh, just show somebody what you can do and they're going to be intrigued and they may or may not want to learn. But I, I have dated people before. I uh, had a friend that was living in a townhome and they had zero preps. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I tried to encourage them. And he just said, I don't have room for it. Well, I looked around the place. I said, I found tons of space. If you want to get some, nope, they never, they never got involved. And before major storm, they had, oh yeah, I'm just going to go out and get supplies now. Some people you're never going to win over for that. And what I'll tell people is, you know, you start with your core family. Those are the people that you want to prepare for your spouse, your children, branch out from there. Then you have people like neighbors, which is why it's good to have these conversations. And maybe they might not think preparing is such a great idea, but maybe they like gardening. Work with them, have them work with you. Do some raised beds or some gardening and say, hey, I'll do tomatoes if you want to do zucchini or onions. And we can share, we can share some of our crops. So encourage them that way. Then they're going to be people at work, um, you know, that 
you you owe no you owe them nothing and you know acquaintances and i've got i've had work associates and people say oh i'm just going to come to your house when when everything goes bad and to those people i'll say don't even think about it but if you do live in an area where people might just show up i do have a set of supplies on hand that i can give people and send them away and this is you know this is something to help get you started if things look like they're going to get bad but i i focus on my family and branch out from there okay uh well you and i would have different approaches but that's okay maybe it's because i'm an academic in some been to college or whatever and then of course me being blind i probably wouldn't be able to see that you had eggs on your counter unless you told me and i don't even know if i had a question why because i thought maybe you were just preparing dessert or making cookies or something to that effect. But yeah, okay. That approach works though. Now you wrote a book called the lost frontier. Is it, I know you can get it on Amazon. Can you get it on audible as well? You know, I'm not sure about that. It's actually available at the lost frontier handbook.com or.net. And I do not know if there's an audi audible version from my understanding. There is not yet. Unfortunately, is that I want to see you to download it in a PDF or what? Yeah, you can do that. And you can also oh. get a physical copy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I just downloaded in a PDF. Well, let me ask you uh, one more question. And then if you don't mind, stay with me here after the podcast, I have something to talk to you about. Uh, you're not in trouble sure. though. This isn't one of those parents. <laughs> I need to talk to you. Um, what do you like the most about being a prepper and what rewarding experiences have you had? Peace of mind. You know, you can go from wringing your hands, being worried about whatever might be a problem, clutching your pearls and with everything, you know, that seems to be going so crazy. It's, it's a great way to occupy my time and know today I just, you know, process three more quarts of tomatoes and I've got stuff in the freeze dryer. I know that the things that I cannot control, I don't stress over those, but the things I can control is providing for myself and for my family and knowing that I have those skills, knowing that I have this knowledge, knowing that I have all the supplies and uh, that I will be ready is, is a way to really just filter out the stuff that stresses people out right now. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, I'd love to let people know they can read a lot of my preparedness blogs. They are all on, on, my, on my website, Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-C Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N.com, Suzanne C. Sherman.com. I have a podcast on Anchor called The Red Hot Chili Prepper, as well as the Wasatch Report. And my book is The Lost Frontier Handbook, available at www lostfrontierhandbook.net. All right. Well, thank you very much. Next week, we're going to have a good conversation. I don't know who the guest is yet, but it will be somebody. In the meantime, I will talk to you later, folks.